Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Um, I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, I pray for Joel this morning that you'll give him clarity and insight into your word. And Lord, I pray that our minds will be set on you, that we can hear and receive this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Sarah. If you've never heard the phrase debtor's prison, uh, it is a building or institution that's uh, really designed for one person, purpose, and, and that's to scare people into paying money uh, that they owe. Um, and to that end, debtor's prisons throughout human history have been pretty effective uh, at scaring people. Uh, they uh, often have had terrible conditions uh, it's just not a desirable place to go. And so if you owe money and you had the ability to pay, you would often do that in order to avoid that outcome. But the real human downside to places like debtor's prison is if you don't have the ability to pay. If uh, your family doesn't have the ability to pay, then what ends up happening is you end up getting dumped into a prison with no option for getting out. The only way to get out is to make enough money to pay off your debts. And if you have no way to make enough money to pay off your debts, your debts will never be paid. 
The United States was one of the first countries, uh, probably because of our own history, uh, immigrants coming to the country and oftentimes the situations that they were fleeing, Together with our own economy, the way that we structured it, we, we liked people uh, taking risks uh, and taking on debt. We outlawed debtors' prisons. The Supreme Court ruled them unconstitutional. And Jill Lepore wrote in uh, the New Yorker magazine some years ago a fantastic article kind of covering this whole history. Uh, what are debtors' prisons? What have people uh, used them for? How effective are they? And how has our country, uh, in particular the United States, looked at this as an option? And in the article, she quotes Samuel Johnson. Johnson was this 18th century wizard when it comes to the English language. He wrote a dictionary. You know you know something about English if you write your own dictionary, right? That's this guy, Samuel Johnson. But he had spent time in a debtor's prison before. And so in reflecting on that experience in 1758, he said, We have now imprisoned one generation of debtors after another, but we do not find that their numbers lessen. We don't find that there's less people who end up taking on debt or being in a position not of their own making or partially of their own making that they can't get out of. And how does prison solve that? In her article, uh, Jill Lepore was uh, talking about how America, when we outlawed these prisons, we moved to the bankruptcy system. We gave people the option of declaring bankruptcy. And she talks about how over time, initially that really worked, and there weren't, it was like one in 19,000 people declared bankruptcy in America. But over time, uh, those numbers increased and increased and increased and increased. And in a sly play, I think, on the Samuel Johnson quote, uh, she writes in her piece, and this is quoting Jill Lepore, we have now seen bankruptcy uh, one generation after another, and we find that their numbers do not lessen. So whether you go the debtor's prison route or whether you go the bankruptcy route, the, the sum total of her article was people, because of their own internal decisions, and because of external factors that they don't often control, changes in the market, being uh, defrauded by partners, medical emergencies, they get in positions where they owe money that they cannot pay. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he is writing to deal with the reality of spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritual bankruptcy of not just uh, one group of people, not just, certainly not one individual, but for all of humanity. Spiritual bankruptcy where when it came to living up to God's standard for us, we couldn't do it. We could not navigate life perfectly. Probably something that's not foreign to you. You aren't perfect. And in Paul's letter, he's talking about the different routes that people have tried to respond to spiritual bankruptcy. You can try to make life really, really hard for people. Almost the equivalent of uh, a spiritual debtor's prison. Follow all the rules. We're going to throw you in there and, and take away the key. And we hope that that fear drives you to live better. Or you can try some other model. Uh, taking it easy on people or ignoring spiritual realities altogether. But Paul's conclusion is that left to ourselves, 
Whether we try to follow more rules or ignore the rules altogether, our spiritual bankruptcy does not go away. Generation after generation faces the same spiritual reality. And so Paul is leading us to the question of where then do we find our hope? Once we begin to come to grips with the reality that there's a God who created our world and has given us a standard for what he requires of us, and then we begin to do business that we don't live up to that, where do we turn? Where is it that you turn? What route do you take this morning in the face of your own spiritual debt? That's the question that Paul is inviting you to think through. Not ignore, not set aside, not file away for another day, but enter in headfirst. And he does that in chapter 8 of Romans in two points. And we're going to look at this together. Uh, the grim reality and a great redeemer. So in the context of this uh, letter to Rome where he's writing to Christians, uh, both Christians with a very religious background and Christians who weren't religious at all. This was all kind of new to them. In chapters 5 through 8, he's trying to unpack the reality of why. Why is it that we face a spiritual indebtedness? Like where does that come from? Like why is it that I can't just uh, live perfectly? Why can't I do what I want? When I personally decide, I want to be a more patient person. Why do I struggle so much in traffic and in my workplace? When I personally decide, you know, I, I want to be a more loving guy to all the people around me. Why is it that people just grate on my nerves so much that I find myself not loving them at all and quite the opposite? This is what Paul is digging into. He's saying, look, there's a reason that you can't go it on your own. There's reasons for that. And in chapters 5 through 8, he's unpacking the why for each of us. He's actually trying to help us understand, hey, you don't have to just take this on face value. Let me show you how and why. And so in chapter 5, and we uh, went through this together as a community, so you can go back later and check out the sermon through podcasts or online. But he talks about the representation and, in fact, the poor representation that we had from Adam in the decisions that he made in the Garden of Eden. That Adam's representation of the human race was terrible. And so that when he made decisions to go his own way, that had overflow effects that it impacted all of creation, including you and me. So why do we face a grim reality? In part, Paul's writing to say one part of our grim reality is Adam's decision in the Garden of Eden. But there's another part. And in the text, you may have heard it as Sarah was walking through verse by verse, uh, Paul uses this language of flesh, uh, flesh. And uh, that, that's not a word that we toss around a lot, particularly when we're talking about spiritual stuff. And so I think it's helpful just to clarify what I think Paul means. He, he doesn't mean uh, our humanness. Uh, he's not, he doesn't mean literally our flesh like skin. He's not talking about skin, okay? Uh, and he's not talking about our, our, our bodies, like our, our physical beings. I, I think that the New Testament scholar Doug Moo, uh, when he wrote his commentary on Romans, he put it this way, and I think this is right. Uh, 
Paul is not talking about the flesh of our bodies or bodies themselves, but the this-worldly orientation that people share. The this-worldly orientation that people share. So a second reason why we face the reality of this spiritual indebtedness is we wrestle with a this-worldly orientation. Our first response when we face problems and even spiritual problems is, well, how can I work my way out of that? What can I do to fix this? And uh, oftentimes when we try that go-it-your-own approach, we don't know the proper direction to head. And that's the flesh that Paul is talking about. It relates to point number one, that, that uh, left to our own devices, we don't know how to find a spiritual true north. In verses 5 and 6, Paul puts it this way. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set their mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. There's just a sharp contrast for Paul, whether you buy it or not, whether you think it's right or not, Paul is setting up this ground where when it comes to our spiritual lives, there's no spiritual neutrality. It's life by the flesh or life by the spirit. And he's talking boldly and I think directly, but I don't want you to miss that he's talking about that uh, in terms of inviting people in to facing this grim reality The third point, so Adam's representation, flesh, and then death. In the second half of verse 2, he says that uh, we faced the reality of law, of sin, and death. In verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. We faced death. Left to ourselves, we couldn't overcome that either. So it's this grim reality of Adam's cosmic changing decision, the way that that impacted each of us, the way that we fight against our this-worldly desires and impulses, what Paul's referring to as the flesh, the reality that death has been introduced into the world. This is not a pretty picture, and those things contribute to why we all face a spiritual indebtedness. It's into this grim reality that Paul continues to push in verses 7 and 8. He says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. So Paul is talking about this in stark terms as a way to call our attention away from going it our own when it comes to our spiritual indebtedness. The good news here, and it's important that you hear this, is that Paul's doing business with this grim reality so that we wake up to what it is we face and just how overwhelming it is so that we can begin to consider and ask the question, what is my hope? Am I trying to just go it my own? There was a news story last year 
where a hiker in Colorado uh, filed a plan for the path that he was going to take. Uh, on this hike, right? And this is pretty common uh, if, if you're not familiar. If you're going to go out uh, into the wilderness, either hiking or camping, you typically file a plan uh, either uh, like with the rangers at the park that you're at or with family or with friends. But it's good, wise, I would say, to let someone know what your planned route is and uh, when you plan to be back. And so that if you're not back, they start to wonder, wait, where is Joel? Which is a good thing in case you get lost. Well, this hiker in Colorado, he got lost. And uh, he had been lost for uh, more than 12 hours when they started looking for him. And he was wandering from path to path. He would later say that he was picking up trails and just moving from the next to the next, but could not figure out where the main trail was to get back to his car. But here's the thing. As he was lost, uh, they realized, because he did file a plan, hey, he's lost, let's give him a call, figure out where he's at, and let's help him. And so his phone began to ring. But on his caller ID, it popped up, unknown number. Now, this guy's habit is that when an unknown number pops up on your phone, you just swipe that away, right? It's likely a telemarketer, right? Somebody calling you who you don't know, you don't want to hear from them. Swipe, nah, I'm going to just keep being lost. I'm going to find my own way. In a later interview, the head park ranger who was heading up after 36 hours, right, this guy, they still never found him. He actually found his car and drove himself home. And they went to his house and they were like, what were you thinking? We were calling your phone. And his answer was like, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just would figure it out. And I saw your calls. I had a signal. I just didn't pick up. In the news story on this, they interviewed it. He's like, listen, if you're hiking and you're out past your time and your phone rings and it says unknown number, please pick it up. It will save us untold hours and concern and publication and dollars and resources. Could you just answer your phone? And it seems so simple to us now, but it's hard when we get in those patterns of swiping away to wake up and realize like, oh, there's a bigger picture going on here. And that's what Paul is doing for you this morning when it comes to this idea of I'm just going to deal with my own spiritual stuff solely on my own. So if you're here this morning and you're new to this whole Christianity thing, uh, you're not sure what it is that you make of the claims of this Jesus and this cross and this resurrection and the spirit poured out, I want to invite you to consider this morning this time of worship and Paul's letter in chapter 8 is an unknown number to you, but one worth answering in the context of your life. That's what Paul's going after. He's trying to help you connect that where you are going is not going to turn out. But he knows the way. Not because Paul's special, but because God himself has intervened. In the midst of this grim reality, the Christian hope is that God himself shows up. In verse 3, the language for God did. Right? God intervenes. He sends his son to take on humanity. He sends his son to, in effect, Paul would describe as the second Adam, the better Adam, the one who would make the right decisions, the one who would faithfully follow all of God's demands and give his life for you. In verse 3, he writes, 
For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk according to the flesh, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is what makes verse 1 and 2 so joyful and exuberant. And it's why I didn't start with verses 1 and 2, probably because if you've been a Christian for some time, you're familiar with that. But it's important to understand the grim reality that these promises break into because of the work of Jesus Christ. There is now, because of Christ's work on the cross, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing to say, you cannot make it on your own, but God has entered in to make a way for you. And if in faith you turn to Christ and you are united to him, here and now this morning there is no condemnation. It is a technical term, but in effect, your spiritual indebtedness is handled in Christ today, tomorrow, forever. That is the good news, friends, in the face of a grim reality. The idea that going it our own will never succeed, but that God met us in the midst of our darkest need to deliver us. That's hope. That is how we can sing of God's praise. That is how we can hope to love and care for one another. That is how we can aspire to be patient and caring. But the good news of this great Redeemer is it's not merely what Christ did on the cross and resurrection— that's significant, we're singing praises about, but there's more. That God has poured his spirit out upon us. In verse 9, Paul writes, You, however, are not in the flesh. And he's talking about people who have turned in faith to Christ, who are departing from this idea that I can go at my own. And they're saying, okay, Christ did it for me. I couldn't do it. I'm going to trust that. I still have questions. I'm still working through some stuff. But my hope is going to be in Christ. When you're united together with him, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. God pours his spirit out upon us. Having believed. So we have a great redeemer not only in the work of Jesus and his death and resurrection, but in the pouring out of God's spirit that serves to meet us in the day in and day out reality of our ongoing spiritual struggle. So that when we struggle to be patient in all sorts of circumstances, Instead of saying, I'm just going to develop a program on myself to just get better at that, which is not going to succeed, Paul says, turn to the spirit which enables you to live. 
Instead of saying, I'm going to develop my own personal anger management program. Paul says, trust in the spirit of God's work in your life to produce fruit. Instead of despairing. Because over and over again, life is teaching you that not only because of your own decisions, but also because of the external forces, it just doesn't seem like there's ever going to be a way in those moments of temptation to despair. The pouring out of God's spirit is for you to lift your face, to remind you of God's goodness and graciousness and love for you, that he hasn't forgot you, that he knows your name, that as Jesus put it, he knows every hair on your head. It's down to that detail that the God who created the world can know and care for us. And so God has poured out his spirit, and we see that working in our lives Now, just a few notes of how that looks and works out. In Paul's day and today, people can talk about being filled with the Spirit as an emotional experience, right? We should all be happy and healthy all the time because we have God's Spirit, so some people would say. I don't think that's exactly what Paul means about how the Spirit works, though. One of the interesting things in prepping this week is to see that in the context of Romans 5 through 8, this passage is a part of that broader context, that in chapter 7, just right before this, if you want to go back and read later, when Paul in exuberation is talking about no condemnation, and when he's talking about how the Spirit delivers us to life and life everlasting and life abundantly, it comes right on the tail end of some of the most honest, transparent, deepest spiritual struggle that Paul ever writes down for all posterity to see. It's interesting that in the Christian life, we don't achieve happiness and health all the time. That's not a Christian expectation. Paul shows us that in Romans chapter 7. So when we think about a spirit-filled life, we should not immediately think happy, healthy all the time. We should think hope and life ultimately, even in the face of difficulty. Also, we shouldn't think about having the spirit as a set of amazing supernatural gifts. I think that's a bit far afield. In Paul's language, everyone who turns in faith to Jesus, the Spirit of God is poured out on. That is, if you're here this morning and you've turned in faith, God's Spirit dwells in you. That's the way it works. Now, as a nurse or formerly a nurse, I'll tell you, there's no like CT scan that you can go and get. It doesn't quite work that way. There's a mystical element to this, but that is how faith works. God's promise to us is that his spirit is given to all who believe. It sets us up for becoming more and more like Christ. In verse 11, Paul writes this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There's this future hope that the grim reality of Adam's decisions 
are dealt with in the second Adam of Jesus Christ. That the ways in which are this worldly orientation, what Paul calls the flesh, uh, seems to push us to more and more debt can function like a prison, that in Jesus Christ, he has broken us free. He has liberated us to live freely. And then there's that final point of that grim reality, death. What do we do with death? It's still there. In verse 11, Paul is making explicit, I think, that the spirit that dwells in us is the same spirit at work when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead that very first Easter some 2,000 years ago, and that that is our hope in the face of our own mortality. Resurrection power through God's spirit is at work in our lives. That is what motivates us to take on a new day. That's how we can grow more and more to become like Jesus. It's not by going it our own. We'll never make it that way. It's by turning and trusting in how God has delivered us and that the resurrection power of God's spirit will be at work in our lives that as we walk day through day or day over day, that we can move forward both individually as a and as a community to be more like Jesus. Our future can be filled with hope, not because we have a great plan for how to settle our own spiritual debt, but because in Christ Jesus, God has declared that we are free. In Christ Jesus, we have resurrection hope for no matter what lies ahead. That by God's spirit, we can live with both hope and peace. Let that be our reality as a community as we live together today. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that as we deal with that grim reality, and some of us in different spots. Some of us are working through this for the first time. Others uh, have known this uh, maybe for years, and are being reminded of your resurrection power and of your spirit poured out and what that means for us. God, I pray that wherever we find ourselves in our own spiritual journey this morning, that we will hear your call of your gracious work for our salvation and that we will respond. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.